0: Alright, we're back once again with How To Pakistan. I've got Musharraf Zaidi with me and before I let him speak, just a quick interlude. So we've got a great guest today and um, I'll tell you two things about this guest that I know. One is that uh, he was in Cadet College and I had a lot of friends that were in Cadet College too and he was a legend at that time. very highly intelligent, went to the medical college and at that it was a scandal i to politics, mein, whatever, and after a year or something he did that. Then, uh, she's got a great reputation. I, I went to, uh, recently when I went to my village, I have a cousin who's uh, very pro-establishment uh, in sort of the worst ways. So, I uh, really good guy otherwise, but, uh, really but uh, I anti-Pakistan, this anti-Pakistan, anti <laughs> and then he was also from Cairnard College. So I said, what about Akil Shah? So he says to me, bate kar
1: rahe, kar <laughs> <laughs> Well, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, thank you for that. That's a great introduction. And it's funny. Thank you it's a it's fu- it's a funny thing because uh that is almost universally uh what people say about Akhil Shah yeah, yeah. high integrity yeah. uh really seems angry at at, <laughs> at, at, at Pakistan uh, and you know as i often say it's not at pakistan not at pakistan se. not at, no, we must be clear there not at pakistan okay yeah, that's true. fantastic so that's a great opening so <laughs> yeah. akhil so let's let's just dive right in yes. You wrote this uh, book that's really been well-received, and I think both academically and, and critically, uh, people think it's an important book. Uh, before we get into who you're angry at and who you're not, because actually, I think it's an unfair characterization, right? As an academic, it's not anger. Yeah. I mean, You've analyzed the situation, and you've, you have some conclusions. But just before we dive fully in, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up being a teacher and writing a book. Because I think that that process is is fascinating, and I'm always keen to learn about how people get to that stage.
2: So just to set the record straight, I'm still a legend. Um,
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, though this journey started really with my father. Actually, he was a um, PNP activist, right? Pashtun Ghaddar. Um We still have to prove our. Uh, uh, we, we have to prove we're Pakistanis. So he would take me to these uh, A N P p Jalsa, he was also a Pashto poet and I think he there kind of soared the seeds of uh, some kind of dissent, intellectual dissent and uh, rebellion in me. And then when I was growing up in Ziyaz, Pakistan, as you can recall, uh, I was at the, this uh, Illustrious scattered College that first mentioned and I remember we were forced to uh, pray. And so that kind of oppression and academic environment with my, uh, with some, you know, the, the Kilda that was already in my head about asking questions uh, led me to politics, to study politics, to understand how Pakistan works, why the military is so dominant. And that question is kind of stayed with me throughout my adult professional life. And so this is kind of, a, I would say, a, a ultimately the, uh, was the goal for me I was working as a journalist in Pakistan for Friday Times and writing op-eds uh, for Dawn. Uh, then I worked with the actually uh, before that I worked with the United Nations. I thought I would save the world uh, by you know um, through international development. Quickly realized that uh, was a fantasy. Pakistan's 99 the coup was when I was at the UN and uh, you know I developed differences with my. Um, immediate bosses about supporting uh, the the military coup and uh, Musharraf's evolution program. Anyhow, so then I uh, joined this international organization that just opened its office in Pakistan, International Crisis Group. I worked there for a year and a half, and eventually I realized that I'd uh, hit a kind of professional ceiling and that I needed to kind of go beyond it uh, and understand Pakistani politics and civil-military relations through a more theoretical lens, so that's how I decided to do my uh, to go into graduate school, uh, and uh, the book is really flows out of my dissertation, um, which I wrote about five years ago, um, and eventually transformed it into a book that it, an informed audience could understand. Because you know, the PhD dissertation was basically to convince my committee that I was a legitimate political scientist, but well, the challenge with the, the book you, was to, to convince them that you're a legend. Essentially, <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: well, I'll just add one yes. other thing on that. The I've always been a legend, so and wisdom. We'll... When Akhil left the yeah. UN based on differences, so I'll say this in Pashto. Mm-hmm. Uh, ah. the, the, the legend was, "Marna mach ke medical prey kardo, osi UN prey kardo." Like, oh, abandon. Ab UN, ye kya karta hai? No, for the longest,
2: the longest time, my mother introduced me as the Levane Pagal who left medical school, left medical college. <laughs> 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 so. There you have
0: it. So, just a question. Now, sure. uh, you've just started, I mean, I, I, I read your article, I really enjoyed yeah. it. And Thank uh, you've you. also seen that this is a very contentious issue. So, yep. for the, what was once a general understanding that drones fuel radicalization by creating mm-hmm. an avenue for, you know, sort of formalizing a revenge motive and then a route to yeah. uh, extremism. Yeah. And you're suggesting yeah. that's not the case. So how is your uh, approach different? What is the data that's different? Why have you uh, come to this particular conclusion?
2: So I was looking at the larger question of Pashtuns in the war terror and how they've been portrayed in the popular media, even in uh, the policy discourse. Um, and because I, I, you know, I speak Pashto, so I was born, as you know, in Chabahar, uh, Kha, I was educated there. And so I wanted to understand the question of how Pashtuns perceive it. And one of the most, as you said, the most contentious issues was this idea that drones were really radicalizing the local population. That has come from people, you know, like uh, well-respected scholars, uh, even American military commanders, Malala Yousafzai. uh, And so I wanted to actually see what the locals were thinking, because there's anecdotal evidence that the closer you get to the areas where drone strikes were happening, uh, the more support you find uh, for these strikes. And not out of love for America. I mean, it's not that drones are winning hearts and minds. But the, So I started with that basic puzzle of trying to understand what people in North Wadiristan, which is arguably the most droned area in the world, what do they think? What are their perceptions of uh, this war that is being carried out from the skies, and and as you know, Arun Pakistan, uh, left wing, assorted right wing uh, uh, people, <laughs> led by uh, the great pro democracy politician Imran Khan, uh, have led this narrative of anger, alienation, radicalization. And so I so I thought let's start with talking to people from North Waziristan. And the opportunity was it's hard to go to North Waziristan, but you know uh, paradoxically the Pakistan the has Uh, displaced uh, people from North Waziristan, and now you find them mostly in Banu, who don't have the means to live in uh, Peshawar, uh, but also Peshawar and other so-called settled districts. So I started with asking questions of people who had worked on North Waziristan, journalists. And the first thing I noticed was people were really afraid to even speak openly about drones, even saying the word drone on the phone. Uh, they were reluctant, they were hesitant. And so it got me thinking what was going on. I mean, I, I suspected that they were obviously uh, afraid of retribution from, you know, the two actors that have uh, kind of controlled that environment, uh, the military and the militants. And so as I started to dig in deeper, I, you know, I tried to interview as large a cross section of opinion as possible. It wasn't easy to do a uh, randomized scientific survey, one, because the moment you Uh, you know, get a formal instrument and go out in the field and say, okay, let's have a survey. Um, uh, There will be repercussions. And because of my book, I was already in... uh let's say not in the good books of the Inter-Services Intelligence, and I had faced some harassment. Uh, Plus, it's also very difficult to go into IDP camps and do a scientific survey, given that, you know, really the, for instance, Pakistan census is, what, 18 years old. So I started with what was the next possible um, best solution, given the time, the resources, and all the other constraints, which was to basically sit down with people, do semi-structured interviews. So I have a set of questions, like three or four questions that I to everyone, but then uh, leading from there, ask different people questions and kind of, kind of delve deeper into the thoughts, perceptions, and views of people who have be completely ignored in this debate. And, you know, there's really no polling done in FATA, uh, especially in North Uzbekistan, except for this one survey, I think, with Free America and uh, New America Foundation did. But that survey was conducted by CAMP. I think it's a local NGO which stands for a Community a community Improvement and Training or something, and when I looked at that data, the CAMP data showed that, yes, there was a very high level of opposition in FATA against drone strikes, that they opposed drone strikes, but when you disaggregate it and you look at North Waziristan, it really leaps out at you. The highest uh, level of support for drone strikes was in North Waziristan. This is within the
0: CAMP data.
2: This is the CAM data, yes. Okay. Seven, uh, amongst all the seven FATA agency as well as the six FR agencies. So that was the only data that you, you have. Uh, um, and uh, the other problem with doing large scientific surveys is this question of social desirability bias. Because of the level of fear, I mean, I had people like, you know, who would say, we don't want to be interviewed in a house. Uh, can we go and talk in a car? And there's one senior Malik from North Hadidistan, he's an old guy, he said to me, "Is there a camera in this car? Are you taping this? Are you recording this?" Because I don't want to be caught dead. I mean, anyone who speaks out against dro- uh, for drones is in trouble. And as, if you contrast that with people who spoke speak out against drones, uh, you know they're 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 living a lavish life. There are no restrictions on their movements. This one character that's now being kind of promoted Malik Jalal who claims that he's been, you know, um, the the drones missed him four times. Uh, These are the people who are out there and the people who have a different perspective cannot even speak out in public. So I did about 147, 150 interviews with um, what we call snowball sampling. So you go to people you trust or know who know the region or experts and ask them for contacts. And then there the contacts, you go and talk to people, build some trust because of the, you know, kind of the environment of suspicion and fear, and kind of get a chain sampling. You get referrals to other people and try to make as broad a sample as possible in terms of saturation. So let's say I want to interview all the parliamentarians from North Pakistan, uh, as many maliks as I can, um, human rights activists, journalists, so that was really uh, how it started and uh, where yeah. I'm at now. So so, so Akhil, yeah.
0: one of the things that I'd also like to ask is that, sure. you know, I've been looking at some of the feedback that has come post your article yeah. and in some ways it's being inferred that yeah. one is that it's, a, I mean, it's a piece of research that's saying that this is what people feel in sort of this oh. one spatial uh, space. Uh, yeah what is being inferred that it is an argument, almost an ethical argument, which I haven't seen in the article mm-hmm. itself, but that it's an ethical yeah. argument justifying uh, mm-hmm. one, uh, which is uh, you know, hitting people who don't have a voice, and two, uh, you know, the violation of, say, a territorial integrity or nationhood. So as far as you know, in what you've done in the article, when it comes to these particular inferences that are coming mm-hmm. out of it, what's your
2: opinion on that? So, that was expected. I mean, I was expecting to walk into a shitstorm. That that hasn't prevented me in the past doing things. Let's just delay. Beep! Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I was expecting people would say, well, look, perfect, right? This uh, validates uh, the the official American position. It justifies it. And if you read the article carefully, which very few people probably did, Personally, I was, I'm morally, ethically appalled by the idea that another state would go into the territory of a sovereign state and carry out extrajudicial killings. But that, you have to juxtapose it with what people on the ground are telling you. I mean, I cannot impose my moral preferences on people who have lived under drones and who keep telling you, look, drones are not what we like, but what else could we do? The Pakistani government have basically abandoned us to these Zaliman, right, Taliban, these cruel militants who had established a peril, mini Afghanistan, Taliban-style state, and we would get midnight knocks on our door saying, uh, give me two of your children for a suicide bomb, uh, uh, for terrorist training, or we'll kill your family. So, in that sense, I was expecting that this would be seen as a justification, which it obviously is not. Now, the question of sovereignty, again, is obviously deeply contested. My problem with the sovereignty issue is that. It's a very well-recognized practice of international law, a norm of international law, that a state, if the state consents to uh, the use of force in its territory um, to another state, that's really not a violation of sovereignty. And we know that Pakistan has, or Pakistan's military, has endorsed, acquiesced, and often actively supported, at least in the initial years. Um, so uh, it's, in that sense, not a violation of sovereignty if you've consented to it. Now, it's a violation of sovereignty in another legal sense that, the, you know, the U.N. Security Council has not authorized it, right? So, in that sense, it does violate Pakistan's sovereignty. But you have to look at the question of consent. How do drones fly in Pakistani territory? I mean, you see in WikiLeaks there, the you know, at the time, the Army Chief of South Paribas Ishaf was, uh, I think, uh, basically allocating corridors for drones to fly in and asking the Americans to give... Pakistan's military some drone coverage in area x where they were facing resistance so this uh, consent even though it's not publicly known or publicly declared pakistan pakistani officials have allowed americans to carry out this drone campaign so the question of sovereignty is really to me the you know kind of Uh, A knee-jerk nationalist reaction, of course, but you have abandoned this territory to a group of non-state actors that are not only brutalizing and terrorizing the people, your own people, to whom you also have the responsibility of providing security, but are growing across the border and killing Afghan civilians. Even if American casualties or NATO casualties don't hurt your moral sensibilities, they're killing (laughs) Afghan civilians, right? And so that's how I see the sovereignty question.
0: So I just have two quick questions, follow up, and sorry, sure. instead of I'm yeah. just, uh, dominating uh, the questions, but I have two quick questions. So in your interviews, yeah. one is I've uh, read in another research report. Again, it didn't have that much access. But uh, one of the things about the drones has been is that it has created a sense of uh, or almost uh, post-traumatic stress amongst mm-hmm. children growing up because sure. They can hear it. They know what it does. Yeah. It, the, uh, there's the local
1: a, name for it, apparently, is because it does Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and uh, the second one is, how do you explain um, sort of uh, this particular perception? Because I find an interesting exception in this is mm-hmm. the military has sanctioned drones from another state. However, it, it's encouraged um, a sort of uh, you know a, a reaction against it, however, how what explains an almost uh, you know free pass given to the military for not being able to stop the drones, mm-hmm. especially since its mm-hmm. remit is seen as so powerful in this country that it's almost invincible in its fighting capabilities? so these two questions.
2: So, I did find evidence, uh, and there's, you know, uh, in other reports, for instance, by uh, that NYU, San, uh, NYU Stanford Law School study, the Crisis Group report has talked about this uh, constant surveillance. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't personally, or even, you know, my enemies uh, want to live under constant surveillance of anything, right? And you're being surveyed from up above your head. And apparently there's some controversy over you know how loud the sound is, but it does. It, there's a buzzing sound. Most people said, well, you know, it's like a mosquito or a fly just constantly buzzing in your in your ears. And I, I wasn't able to interview children. That's a, uh, I, I focused on pe- adults, 18 years or older. Um, the people who did claim, for instance, Malik Jalal claimed. The uh, Malik Jalal is the guy who now was recently in UK saying, you know, uh, I'm on the kill list. He said, my children are really traumatized and deeply disturbed, and I humbly requested him, can I speak to them uh, please? And he, he said, said yes, yeah, yes, of course, of course. Of course. I, I said, said, can I speak to them? now?" he said, no, no, they're not here. And I'll call him back. But he never called me back. But uh, that I think that would be something interesting to look at, to talk to more children. Uh, but the other kind of counter-response to this I got was, well, yes, it is a nuisance, it's annoying, but... Uh, have you ever lived in a Taliban state? Uh, have you ever lived under the bombardment of the Pakistani Air Force and the artillery? Because that really shakes the earth. That is really when we fear for our lives and we're on the run. The drones have screwed up. They have killed civilians. There, there were several catastrophic strikes, which is condemnable. Even one, losing one civilian life uh, is obviously, um, people should be held accountable for that. But they say, well, look, the, uh, the alternatives were much worse. And in a sense, this was, uh, and pretty quickly we realized that they're not hitting us. We're really not in danger of being killed. And if you, I mean, if you want really from the horse's mouth, if you look at Shaibas Tassir's tweet from yesterday, he said, look, uh, they always hit the right people. Uh, 99.9%. I mean, what other evidence do you need in terms of direct evidence from somebody who lived under drones for four and a half years? And which kind of corroborates what I heard from most people that I interview. Now, this question of uh, the military. I mean, as you know, uh, Pakistani nationalism or nationalism in general are so bound up with the armed forces. And the armed forces of Pakistan have built this reputation based on... Protecting Pakistan from you know this Hindu behemoth called India, Uh, and so within the larger national security narrative, they have obviously been able to kind of uh, skirt the responsibility for allowing these drones. And I mean, even people who question this immediately blame it on Zardari or Gilani, uh, the former prime minister, and say, well, you know, why why did these guys allow it when we know that these guys didn't allow it? Now, there's a moral question there. Well, if you are not. I mean, if you don't have the authority, you shouldn't be in power, right? I mean, the, uh, the buck ultimately rests with the prime minister and the president. But in any way, so the, the kind of the cynical explanation of this is that the Pakistan military has used this um, and actually helped fan and uh, fester this resentment through working with the media. I mean, if you're in Pakistan and you're watching, you know, uh, about a year ago when I was there, and you're watching, uh, you know, one of the channels covering the drones, You really feel like uh, there are drones everywhere, they're striking people, they're killing lots of innocent civilians. And the Pakistan military has done this before. I mean, it's not the first time that it has done things that it's been able to plausibly deny, both to Pakistan internally to Pakistanis and to the international community and its benefactors in Washington.
1: Uh, Akhil, you know, I I think the drone debate is... I don't know what you think, but but, but I think the drone debate is, unfortunately, one of, like so many things these days, is a victim of people deciding what side they're on and then arguing a case for a specific thing based on what side they're on. And so that really takes away the rigor uh, which you've tried to sort of inject, you know, even in the op-ed. And, you know, op-eds are usually places op-eds are vulgar uh, places if if you th- I mean as a, as an op-ed writer myself every week sure. you yeah, know there's a vulgarity to it in the sense that you don't really get to establish a baseline and a credible evidence uh, sort of route for the argument that you're making and then you have to make the argument but you've done that yeah. I, I think quite reasonably in in the piece uh, I would I mean I'd probably also say that some of the harsher criticism on the methodology some of it might stand some of it might not yeah. but but I, I feel like the debate itself Before we can get to a reasonable discussion between Akil Shah and, let's say, one of his critics, you know, the debate gets watered down. It gets drowned in this acerbicness, right? Because I have to be against drones because my ideological moorings are that drones are really bad. And because Akil Shah wrote a book, in which he doesn't really like the military he probably loves yeah. the US military <laughs> and he probably yeah. loves yeah. killing killing innocent people and so you know and so and and that's not really i mean in Urdu we say naqis debate it has no so one of the reasons why we wanted to have this conversation with you was was to actually step away from that a little bit um, hmm. let me ask you this at what hmm. stage did president obama call you and ask you to write the op-ed <laughs> in preparation for uh, for Mullah Mansour's assassination.
2: <laughs> uh, you're giving me too much importance. Uh, uh, it was the CIA, which called, actually. <laughs> <laughs> <was it? laughs> was it? But you... Uh, uh,
1: I think in terms of timing. What What did you think when you saw, when you woke up or whatever when it was during the day? I in- said,
2: uh, "Oops." <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew that this was the worst timing possible, right? <laughs> the, comes the day before, and then the Americans take out, allegedly, reportedly take out the head of the Afghan Taliban. And one of the articles uh, that the comments just—I uh, was looking at the Washington Post comments just under my article, and or or I think it was dawn, or maybe. Uh, either of those two and it said very clearly perfect. This was the justification they planted in the Washington Post and that's how they're gonna You know ratchet up the war. I mean come on. Have they not ratcheted up uh, already? Yes It's different that it happened in Balochistan, but what no, can no, you do
1: about they, it? And they really needed a, a WAPO op-ed to sanction the Pakistan. Pakistan. <laughs> Exactly exactly well, yeah. but but. Obviously, one thing. I mean, as as yeah. one from one op-ed writer to another, please don't sure. ever, ever, ever visit the comment section. That's a place <laughs> for crazy people, man. That's yeah. not a place for for you. Uh, it's it's only going to depress you. The- I would really
2: I have surprised a question, the reaction of seemingly reasonable Pakistanis based in the U.S. with obvious left inclination, which, which is perfectly fine. Rather than even saying, look, respectfully, we disagree, your data is flawed, they started this visceral kind of blowback campaign saying, well, this is, you know, this is like an undergrad paper, who made you a professor? <laughs> uh, you, if you give it to, as an undergrad paper, you'll probably get an F. Uh, you're in, are you incompetent or malicious? And these are not, I'm not just talking about, you know, random trolls. You can say, well, look, this, this methodology is really bad. I have not said it's flawless. I'm willing to accept all social sciences' flaws, but don't question me on my integrity, right? Don't question me on the fact I, I think that, I that that's, this, that's the troubling part. Just yeah. say, well, look, this debate is that might be your viewpoint, but I think you know you're wrong. But and impugning motive—that's very classic, right? When you don't really have a point, when your cast, kind of your uh, uh, sand castles are being demolished, what do you do? You label people, you impugn motives to them. And it's perfect, right? CIA agent. But they have never been in 200 miles of Waziristan themselves, right? I mean, how many, I, I, I say, well, why don't you go and talk to like 20 people from Waziristan before you kind of spew this uncorroborated, ideologically rigid position, uh, which is also offensive, right? So, personally, uh, I mean, offensive, so yeah, personally. I, mean, I understand. To, that to get a right out of me. Yeah.
1: No. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I think so. So I think there's a larger discussion, right, that 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 we can have about communication and public discourse in the age of sort of instant gratification from your tweets and your yeah. Facebook status updates. Because I think yeah. there is actually an element of getting our eyes. Uh, we we have we've done now 20, 25 episodes. Mm-hmm. Alhamdulillah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been a really good sort of response. But you know, sure. we've noticed that there's a deliberate sort of. Uh, you know, some of the people that we've talked to deliberately sort of, you know, promote their episodes, you know, at certain uh-huh. times. And so there's a lot of gamesmanship in in, in, mm-hmm. in sort of the age of social media and the digital age. Sure. Look, one thing that where where maybe I would take issue with your op-ed, and maybe not yeah. specifically with the op-ed, but sort of mm-hmm. the underlying assumptions, and correct me if I, if I'm getting it wrong, but look, one of the... One of the ways in which the anti-drone position has been debated is that it isn't necessarily that drones themselves generate Mm -hmm. blowback within the communities in which they have operated, but that Mm -hmm. the narrative, the kind of hardcore nationalist, protective, isolationist uh, narrative that exists in the country and that is widespread, that Mm -hmm. narrative is given uh, given strength and is, is provoked With every drone strike. So the issue isn't so much that you attack point A in Waziristan and a Waziri or a Masood living there becomes a suicide bomber. The point is that you attack a place in Pakistan and a Pakistani, Mm -hmm. maybe an IBA graduate living in Karachi, who maybe listens to a lot of podcasts and reads a lot of Waipo. Uh, Op-eds and writes comments really angry ones and is really angry about the place of Muslims in the world that that young man uh, For him Mm -hmm. it does have a radicalizing effect and for him the effect that's being claimed i.e., that locals don't like it He may not be a local in the sense that he's part of the victim community Mm vis-a-vis that geographical location But he is part of the quote-unquote victim community in the sense that he sees himself as part of a narrative of victimization Mm -hmm. Uh, by the Empire that is conducting these drone strikes. Uh, Does that
2: seem like an unreasonable position to you? No, I think that's a very good uh, reasonable point. Uh, The problem is that um, Yes, there is a broader question of radicalization, right? But what I was trying to address in this in op-ed, right, I'm going to do a broader study, was this question that has become an article of faith that revenge is deeply embedded in Pashtunwali, right, the Pashtun social code, ethical code, and that it's precisely because there is this revenge motive that when you hit a family, the relatives or people affected by it just become these bloodthirsty uh, militants. And so if you look at the work of, um, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, the counterinsurgency guy that I've quoted uh, in the article, which says, every drone strike Uh, Is one family alienated, one guy just, you know, taking, strapping on bombs or whatever. So that, so I was trying to address that specific question. If, does, do drones have a direct localized effect or not? Because the, the narrative about Fatah and Pashtuns is that they're, you know, they're kind of all Taliban, right? You cannot have a Taliban insurgency unless it has popular support. And that comes from the literature on insurgencies broadly, that insurgents need local support, local sanctuary which may be true, but the people in Fata and Waziristan that I talked to were more than anything else pragmatic, right? They were, they were making rational calculations of relative safety, relative security. The perception outside is that these people, even amongst Pashtuns, liberal, uh, you know, urban Pashtuns, they have these stereotypes of people from North Waziristan or from other Fata agencies as savages, right? Uh, that these people are just crazy. Uh, and I was surprised that University you know, of Peshawar professors who I thought would have a better understanding of the sociology of the Pashtun tribes were spewing these colonial stereotypes right, left and center. So the problem that I was trying to address was: OK, fine, there might be a broad backlash um, of drone strikes, goes, fits in with this kind of larger uh, war on terror and American invasion of Muslim land, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also a very specific effect that needs to be. At least assess and evaluate. Now on the broader question, I mean, in radicalization we still don't know uh, exactly. It's a very complicated process. Do drone strikes feed into the radicalization of an engineer or a, an IB graduate? Of course it does. But drone probably is one piece of the puzzle. I mean, um, Akil,
0: if I you could don't interrupt you for yeah. a second, I just wanted to add a question that yeah, yeah. fits into
1: Musharraf's and yours. Which is, is it about Mahajir and Punjabwali? No, no, no. Because no, yes. you know, those are things too. Those are you things. know, we have honor too, bro. Oh, I know <laughs> you have. We have
0: honor too. <laughs> honor too. Yes. Honor. yes. yes. So, so honorable so, people. So, so uh, the question is, maybe mm-hmm. the broader question then is, yeah. uh, on a utilitarian level, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is that the militants you get and the fact that there is a lack of a localized effect, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Is there a bigger benefit of losing the militant, or the fact that there is a lack of a localized effect, but that the broader effect of the drone in the rest of the country primed already for a certain Mm -hmm. form of nationalism that could Mm -hmm. somehow, uh, if given the right conditions, tear itself into extremism. Is that still a bigger issue? So I think, uh, I I know this is a very large hypothetical, uh, but but I'd wonder what your, uh, because this is also, I think, the stem of the argument that if we acknowledge that with the new data yeah. that maybe localized effect is low, but if yeah. the national yeah. effect is much higher still,
2: does yeah. that uh, what does that mean in
0: terms of the drone debate?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I'm not denying that uh, many urban Pakistanis or Pakistanis outside FATA, most of the polls actually show that they universally loathe drone strikes. Does that feed into Extremism and radical views, probably, yes. I mean, there's, that's a kind of larger question that needs a much larger canvas or a much larger kind of survey to measure. Um, so I'm not denying that it doesn't have broader effects, uh, but the process of radicalization and extremism is much more complicated. Drones probably do feed into the narrative of American hegemonic imperialistic design, uh, but then there's the Iraq war, then there's the occupation of Afghanistan, there's the Palestinian issue, right? Uh, so drones probably do inflame opinion. My specific question was motivated by this complete absence of the local opinion in the debate. Right. You've completely kind of disregarded what the people on the ground feel, right? The people who are actually experiencing or have experienced the effect of drones, the effect of militancy and terrorism, the effect of Pakistani military operations, and the agency. There have been FATA-wide surveys, uh, and with the exception of that uh, AP study, I think, where this uh, uh, journalist sent a stringer into North Waziristan with the 10 most kind of uh, well-known devastating strikes, there's really no uh, attempt to gauge even in in, in a non-scientific way, right, the opinion of the people from North Waziristan. So my primary motivation was to get this voice out. I don't speak on behalf of them. They, I mean, I—they have their own voice. I just wanted to be the kind of messenger, and obviously, shooting the messenger works. Um, <laughs> per, for a lot of
1: people, right? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to present sort of uh, like a question, but I'll I'll sort sure. of caveat it with with a personal okay. reflection, and then basically, then I'm going to project onto you, and <laughs> we'll see whether you like it or not. And, you know, I've. Uh, When I started writing op eds and and you know like ten years ago, and then I started writing more and more internationally, Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. always tried to do a decent job of of presenting a balanced point of view. But one thing that's always uh, sort of tugged at me is kind of a very overt and unapologetic kind of a Pakistani nationalism. You know, I really I'm deeply invested in this country. I'm you know a lot of people are raising their kids here, so I don't like to say you know I live here and I raise my. That's t- there's 200 m- million other Machados, right? That's yeah. not a biggie. Yeah. But th- but the point being that I, I mean, I, I, hope, am, like,
2: I, I, I have... hope they're not 200 million machetos, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that depending would... on yeah, okay.
1: yeah, that yeah. would be bad. I,
2: I get I, I get your point. Yes. Yeah.
1: So what what I, what I was trying to say was, you know, I sometimes have struggled with. Trying to have a balanced take on Pakistan particularly on its national security behavior and the behavior of the military over the years both institutionally and sometimes even individually, but also a uh, feeling that you know we, we only have one army we only have one country uh, we're gonna have to mm-hmm. deal with what we have and try and convince people to behave in in the best way possible for our country and I guess what I'm saying is, I can never really claim I mean I try hard to be objective but I can never really claim to be totally objective because I am in the tank for this country right and then similarly there's other identity markers you know I'm uh, I mean my family you know migrated to Pakistan from from India so there's that angle Uh, you know, I'm a Muslim uh, and I'm trying to be non-denominational, although obviously we have habits that we're brought up with and raised with. And so in each one of those, I'm a big Toronto Maple Leafs fan. So in each one of those identity markers, uh, you know, we carry the bias of that identity with us. One thing that I've picked up and again, totally like, totally trash what I'm saying if, if you disagree, yeah. but one thing I pick up is that Pakhtun nationalism is is important for you as as a set of ideas and as uh, identity parameters, um, and given that some of the research you're doing on this stuff is obviously closely linked to issues of Pakhtun identity, uh, there's yeah. definitely uh, and, and rightly so, I mean, I think it sounds to me like you're interested in there being a fair representation of Pakhtuns, which is a perfectly legitimate sort of aspiration. But do you do you struggle with the sort of academic uh, need to be unbiased with the personal need to be located and rooted with a specific identity? I mean, how does that work for you? And and is it a struggle at all? Or are you are you totally sort of, you know, 100 percent comfortable with where you're at?
2: So let's let me pose this, let me kind of turn this question in the head in its head. Let's say these attacks were happening in Sargoda or you know some other city in Punjab. I would still be um, motivated enough to go and talk to the people on the ground. So yes, I by you know self kind of. Identification. I'm a person, but I'm also a professor. Uh, I'm also a father. I am a bleeding heart constitutionalist, right? So I, have, as every one, every one of us, has multiple identities. Um, I'm not a nationalist. I'm not wrapped up in any flag. Uh, I think nationalism is, by and large, a destructive project, especially of the variety that we have imbibed and internalized in Pakistan, which is that we can only exist if we resist India, if we, you know, bro-beat India, if we divide India, that's an only kind of, um, the the kind of key marker of our identity is to uh, defeat the hegemonic, bullyish designs of this huge country that hasn't really accepted our identity. So I'm not a Pakistani nationalist I'm not even a Pashtun nationalist but I'll tell you this this idea that somehow I am objective or any research is objective I think is is a is a nasty fantasy there is no such thing as objectivity we all bring our subjective perceptions preferences and norms to what we do I think the, the, the right thing to do is to accept it at the outset in my book I have clearly laid out for instance on the first or second page, that I have a pro-democracy bias. So if my book is filtered through that uh, kind of lens of preference for democracy because of political, moral, ethic reasons, I am guilty as charged. So even in this case, I don't think it's so much a Pakhtun identity question. I think it's a question of, talking to the people who are actually affected by it, rather than, you know, kind of raising these hyper-nationalist slogans about sovereignty, when sovereignty itself is hypocrisy. Most of the times, as uh, Steve Krasner has uh, uh, put it in his book on sovereignty, sovereignty is hypocrisy, uh, sovereignty is contestable, it's elastic. What are we? Whose sovereignty are we talking about? What about the sovereignty of the people who have been completely betrayed and abandoned? I mean, If you talk to Pakistani officials, uh, they don't think these uh, people in FATA are humans, and the people in FATA know this. They say, before you talk to us about drones, can you please acknowledge our humanity? We also want that our kids be educated, that we have health facilities, we are normal human beings. So in the Pakistani nationalist narrative, as uh, as it is kind of being uh, kind of transposed from the colonial narrative, is that these people are really savages, right? And no matter what we do, they're going to behave the way they do. Um, they're going to they're these kind of their identity has been so deeply essentialized.
1: As yeah, but but Akil Akil, listen, Akil. You know, I have yeah. so I have Pashtun friends, man.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yes, some of my best friends are Pashtun too. <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so look, I, I mean, I think discussing the topic of Pakistani nationalism with you yeah. uh, is is going to be really interesting because one thing that I've and I've written about this and it really is kind of a it's a pet sort of project of mine is okay. that okay. you know, for example, my nationalism and and I'm like I said unapologetically a Pakistani nationalist, but for me that nationalism entails n- necessarily. Normalizing, starting with trade and eventually exchange services, movement of goods, movement of money, movement of people with India. Yeah. My nationalism yeah. means placing the needs of whatever elected government exists in Kabul above whatever long-term strategic interests we've calculated in Rawalpindi, because those people in Kabul, them feeling strongly and positively about us and about Rawalpindi, is a much greater force multiplier for Pakistani identity than anything else we could ever do in Afghanistan. My Pakistani nationalism is to be as friendly with Iran as to be with Saudi Arabia. My Pakistani nationalism is the military should listen to civilians, and my Pakistani nationalism is that if civilians are incompetent, then I'm going call to call them on it, And i'm going to do it twice on sunday so you know is it possible for you to conceive of a pakistani nationalism that isn't destructive and that that has the potential of contesting the existing traditional and you're right this orientalist kind of post-colonial or pre-colonial sort of narrative about nationalism
2: I, i think so i mean identities can be positively oriented so what you just said, this great speech about your naturalism, uh, very moving, um, I accept. Uh, but that's your definition, right? That's your personal kind of take at it. What I'm talking about is the official narrative that's embedded in our textbooks that's kind of on a daily basis. It's like a daily plebiscite, right? It's reaffirmed every day through messages from the media, through messages from our political discourse, Um the, the military's kind of key role in peddling this nationalism is not the same as yours. But, I mean, I applaud you on kind of pushing this more positive nationalism. Forget about the people uh, who were elected in Kabul. Let's worry about the people of Pakistan and the people of Afghanistan and the people of India. If, t- if you take that perspective, uh, I think it, uh, your, the, the way you have kind of articulated your pers- perspective on nationalism fits right in there. I mean, I'm not saying Nawaz Sharif is not a nationalist, right? But he is he's a Pakistani nationalist who still sees beyond this confrontational kind of self-defeating zero-sum approach and is doing, or has been trying to do for almost over a decade what you're saying, right? Open up trade, normalize this relationship with Afghanistan, with Pakistan. You have to take off these kind of very cold warrior, hot warrior lenses. Uh, but the problem is that our national security narrative discourse, as well as policymaking, is dominated by an institution uh, that is kind of uh, almost impervious to dissent. Um, so if if you, you look at... Yeah, uh, well, Akin, yeah, so exactly
0: uh, here, so what I'd like to ask is that over the past three years, mm-hmm. so we do see some elements of change, or at least a reorientation of the thinking, it goes forward, and of course I've seen it go back as well, you know, especially this past six months, where it seems to be again uh, more India focused than it used to be. Mm-hmm. But my question is, in terms of what's been happening recently, I, at least on my own personal understanding, it's not as deep as yours, and I've held a lot of the same convictions that you have on given you know sort of the problems that this unequal and dominant uh, sort of military establishment uh, has uh, yeah. as an effect on democracy especially, but in the past three years given some of You know the measures that are going on wh- How do you place those because some of them have actually? Well, they've had very glaring omissions, but they've also brought back the country from the brink. So what's your assessment <laughs> of that?
2: Uh, what are you
0: to? You so know, so for example, uh, just the general offensive
1: against the militants um,
2: mm-hmm. Oh, the-
0: Meshkari-Jangvi
1: back in the box. I mean, that's the, for me, the easiest example is the taking out of Malik Ishaq, yeah. which is unquestionably you know, problematic in terms of an extrajudicial killing. But the fact yeah. that it happened, I mean, here we've gone from a place where the GHQ attack was being negotiated over the phone with Malik Ishaq to the same state taking him out. That's a big. That's a now. I'm not saying everything is done and that you know that was perfect. But and there's still big holes in how the approach. Yeah, but that is an example of of some forward movement. Yeah, pushback or forward movement. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, I think you should call it. If it's positive, yes. I mean, yes. So there's been some shift in taking on the bad Taliban more aggressively and taking out some of these sectarian outfits, right? but primarily the the kind of the the, the groups that Pakistan's foreign policy is based on, right? There is really no shift in no significant shift. Lashkar-e-Taiba, Afghan Taliban, Haqqani Network, right? Those are the groups that are really kind of internationalizing um, what Pakistan does, whether they do it in India or whether they do it in Afghanistan, which then shapes the perceptions of everyone looking from the outside onto Pakistan that, yes, maybe they've taken out the guys, the bad guys that are attacking them, really, but the people who are destabilizing the region, who are killing Afghan civilians, who are trying to destabilize India or Kashmir, those guys are still on the on the state's payroll. I mean, if you re- recall that kind of semi-ambiguous statement by Rana Sana'ullah recently, the law minister of Punjab said, well, how do we prosecute Lashkar-e-Taiba? Uh, you know, the state is involved in that. So um, so that's my worry. that. It, there are some tactical shifts, um, but because there have been, there's no recognition of the costs that these policies have uh, exacted on Pakistan in terms of its international credibility, its ability to uh, appear as a normal, functioning state that abides by the norms of uh, international relations, right? Whether you agree with that or not, you can say, well, the United States does a lot of things that violate international law, et cetera, et cetera. But for Pakistan to even try to start and appear as a state that is really tackling on this the cancer menace of terrorism, we really have to go beyond the groups that uh, are only focused on Pakistan, right? What do you do about groups that are doing nasty things to your neighbors? Is that still the foreign policy or not, and how do we go from here? So what happens after Malik Ishaq, how many madrasas that you know are producing the warriors that Pakistan's military uses in India and Afghanistan, how many of them have been um, closed down? You know, we hear that Jashim e madrasas were closed down, but why were they open in the first place? Wasn't this a prescribed group? Um, so, right, right, so deeply question troubling questions. Is, but is, of course, one should acknowledge that even taking on the good Taliban is 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 a step in the right direction.
0: So my question to you is that given how strong it's, uh, one is uh, you know how it's perpetuated its institutional mm-hmm. memories, its institutional yeah. ideology, which is for the army, and we see it as a monolith in some ways. It's slowly acknowledging some change. I'm I'm just wondering, is it? Uh, and this is. As an academic, I'd like you to try and, uh, is in terms of like institutional change, are we then yeah. expecting that it, uh, you know, maybe too much too soon? And number two, is that whatever evidence we do see, is there any chance that this would grow or these will be flash in the pants?
2: So I wish I had a crystal ball, but I don't. But what I tell you is this, institutional change doesn't happen overnight. Right? deeply internalized, deeply imbibed institutional norms that basically shape the parameters of what appropriate behavior is, right? So if my commander calls me and says, look, you have to take over the prime minister's house, one is, well, if I don't do it, will I be, you know, crucified? The other is well this is the right thing to do. You know one of the 99 coup makers told me that when he was taking over the Prime Minister's house he was really excited because that was the most important rightful thing he had done right. So that's you know kind of digression so in the coup.
1: Clearly he, he wasn't getting many dates back in 99. I mean if he, if he was getting if he was getting excited he,
2: about He was a major general. He was a major general who kind of uh, anyway. He had moved uh, to rig the <laughs> so I mean just, Institutional change, um, the lazy, lazy uh, scholarly explanation is as an exogenous shock, right? You get a shock from the economy or the international system, like, you know, um, let's say a catastrophic war. So the classic example is Argentina, 1982. Now, the problem is that with Pakistan and India, given that they're nuclear weapons, war is not really, you know, an option. 1971, which was, I think, as shocking a defeat and humiliation, that the Pakistani military could have absorbed, didn't really change the, the, the basic parameters of the civil-military relations. Now, you can say Bhutto screwed up.
1: akil didn't 71, in fact, you know, uh, the more I think about it, mm-hmm. uh, there's this weird orthodoxy about 71, that 71 was this disruption that should have mm-hmm. led things in a, in a better direction. But if you really think about it, shouldn't 1971 have done what it actually ended up doing, which is it actually ended up consolidating and reinforcing a Punjab-centric, uh, you know, with with, with traces of uh, sort of, you know, sort of UP Mahajar sort of uh, uh, identity, you know, sprinkled into it, this very sort of center-centric, uh, dominant theology about the nature of the state that the periphery is not to be trusted yeah. so if nap was bad anp is 10 times worse mm-hmm. and if uh, you know yeah. Dish was 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 bad the ppp is just a sexier version of the same goddamn thing and if bukti was tolerable on the margins in the 70s and 80s and 90s well we got to take him out in the in the in the 2000s and so this really in a sense 71 reinforced every negative anti periphery I mean, even the concept of the mm-hmm. word periphery for, for, for your own citizens, for your own, your, your own right? As a yeah. co- concept, the idea. I think,
0: I think that's a very interesting uh, idea. Right? I, yeah, I'd, I'd like to know what you think about that. Because that actually has framed it in a very interesting
2: fashion for myself, actually. Uh, yeah. So what you're talking yes. about, right, what political scientists call path dependency. That once you're on a track, a path that you choose at a critical moment, it's very hard to kind of disassociate yourself. And... Institutional change then happens at times where you know you have a situation where something's up for grabs. So if you look at the kind of trajectory of Pakistan's political development from 1947 on, where if there was one point, even if it was a narrow window of opportunity, there was this kind of moment of change. Right, for the first time, you had a, a, a democratically elected government, regardless of what happened in you know 1971. That had the legitimacy and the kind of societal support to reform and restructure the state, including the military, which was deeply, deeply humiliated. You know, people in Punjab were up against arms and, you know, basically ridiculing the army. And there were some missteps by Bhutto. So it may not have been like that large kind of tectonic shift in the basic structures of the Pakistani state, but I think if you look at the 68, 69 years, Uh, If 47 to 58 was a critical juncture, this was kind of at least a mini-critical juncture where things at least offered the, you know, kind of the hope of change. If you don't consider that, then you basically, it's really a narrative of despair and dysfunction, right? That nothing can change. That even in 69 years, what ends up happening even at kind of semi-critical moments is that existing Choices, institutions, and practices get reinforced rather than challenged. Right? So actually,
1: I'm, so I would, if I could just challenge that for a second, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm, you know, and I made this whole spiel about my Pakistani nationalism. Let me just mm-hmm. d- dig into that a little further. Actually, I'm not saying there's despair. I'm saying that 71, that there's a version of 71. I mean, 71 is a shameful, the whole thing that led up to it could is I, shameful. Could I
0: summarize this from what I've understood?
1: Yeah. Because I
0: actually find it very fascinating, your argument. What I believe Musharraf is asking is that seventy one showed that the peripheries were troublesome and that they led to the breakup of the country and that all other peripheries and sub nationalisms had to be dealt with harsher, engineered, so that you could
1: actually keep the country together. Let me let me if, yeah. so that's one interpretation of what yeah. I'm saying, and it's fair that you make that interpretation. I'd be a little I'd be a little gentler. In, in framing sure, it, yeah. I'd, be, I'd be kinder to the establishment, okay, just, just sure. in terms of framing it. So okay. what I would say is the insecurities that were inbuilt in the model in in, in 47, right? Like, bana banaya, birth defect, apos we had this inbuilt insecurity, which is that this is an inorganic state, that the word Pakistan was a concoction, just like Liberia, right? There's no place, there's no language or ethnicity that's at that time. So... There was an inherent insecurity. The fact that there was two wings added to the insecurity. The fact that, you know, the Congresses were pretty contemptuous of, of what, you know, we were trying to do added to the insecurity. And a lot of the long established Muslim majority states were like, what is this? Right. Like yeah. the the, the Masvid were like, you know, who do these guys think they are? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so you had all of that. And that burden caused you to behave in stupid ways, in in self-defeating ways, and that self-defeating behavior produced 71, but because there was external... And also, also that it was a colonial state where a different colonist came out in their injured the, Sure, absolutely, yeah. and then, and then you had 71, and 71 was a time when, uh, you know, whatever, again, we can argue about this, but India did take advantage of the stupidities and the mistakes that Pakistan made, and that act in and of itself reinforced all the negative stereotypes and the insecurities vis-a-vis India at that time. And so from that point forward, every insecurity has already been, has already come alive. And so it's really difficult to convince somebody who's been bitten twice to not be shy every time. So, my nationalism is really about finding the Sindhi who says Pakistan Kape and saying there's some flaws with, with this guy but he's saying Pakistan Kape and he's saying it in Sindhi and there's a Pakistani nationalism there that isn't the traditional nationalism, that's about the people and so game on. And then I find somebody like Miaf Ftahar Hussain who I had the pleasure of meeting today and you know you know, he starts and ends with Pakistan. Like, the a is a Pakistani party today. This is not Ajmal Khatak's nap, right? I mean, these guys are actually, technically, died in the wool Pakistani nationalists. But they're articulating a nationalism from a Pakhtun sort of uh, pedestal, right? They're saying, as Pakhtuns, we, we're really invested in this project. And so what I'm saying is, those nationalisms where you can convince people who are insecure that these identities, the hardcore Sindhi, the Mahajir, even the Punjabi, the Saraiki speaker, the Bravi speaker, the Pashtuns, uh, you know, that all of these identities are are very comfortable being principally what they are and also being Pakistani or vice versa. And that that aspiring to that is important. And one of the ways in which we get there is by not triggering all these insecurities. So
0: I. I... I, I'll let uh, Akhil answer. I just want to add a caveat to that, which is mm-hmm. that so when you've got all these people from Fatah, right? Some of them mm-hmm. have been pushed to the edge. They're not going to say this, that, you know, I'm still Pakistani, or some of the people who've had stuff that's happened to them, mm-hmm. egregiously bad stuff. Well, I mean, Balochistan is Stans, the best, uh, best case, right? case study, right? So Absolutely. I, I, I think, like, to, and I don't think you're suggesting that, but to predicate mm-hmm. it that there's still, you know, uh, for a sort of a state action that has treated them as, frankly, as a lesser Pakistani, for them to still, you know, subscribe to the project. I'm not justifying
1: the state action. No, no, I know that. I'm just saying that we have to find a path that that allows all these multiple identities to exist comfortably. Some of those
0: right now who say that, you know, we're no longer a part of this project, I think outreach to them is still important and tolerance for, the language that they've developed now. It may not appeal to the nationalists, but it's important to get those
1: groups back. But Lala, don't you think I'm tolerant of you? I know that. (laughs) Sorry,
2: Akin. Uh, So that's, I guess, just going back to 71, I said that, you know, in the literature, political science by dependency, change comes through exogenous shocks, right? Seventy-one could have put. What I was trying to say was seventy-one could have potentially been one if there is one in the sixty-nine years history. But because of the deeply entrenched patterns of you know thinking, state practice, policy, and what happened, it wasn't a moment of change. Right. So that was my point about that. It didn't become a moment of change because precisely what you said. Right. The the fact that India came and you know basically cut you cut you into two, set you on the search for getting security through nuclear weapons, cracking down on insurgent nationalism. Now, the question of uh, why do they not think they're Pakistanis? I mean, I, let me give you a small example. I was launching my book at Columbia in New York. And in the audience, I can spot these guys from, you know, 100 miles. There are these two guys who clearly are from ISI or MI. And every time I say a thing, I can see their faces getting red. So after the talk, This guy comes up to me and said, uh, Dr. Shah, are you Baloch or are you Pashtun? I said, why do you ask that? He said, well, because, you know, Pakistanis don't really talk like you do. So the assumption is that until you prove yourself to be a Pakistani national, you're assumed to be guilty, right? So why would a Sindhi say I'm a Pakistani first if his loyalty to the state is questioned? Now, how do you create those? You have to kind of define your nationalism as inclusive. And from day one, you said to the Bengalis, Urdu or, you know, the highway, right? And that created the alienation and, you know, cut, cut a long story short. You have to create those inclusive identities. You know, there was a survey, a uh, South Asia-wide survey, democracy survey done in, I think, a couple of years, more than a couple of years ago. And in that, um, you know, when they asked Indian citizens, Muslims too, by majority, uh, about their identities, their articulation of their identity was multiple and complementary. I'm Indian, I'm Muslim, I'm Bengali. And these are mutually reinforcing, right? So the the state project has not really given that space for nationalism to be defined a little more broad. Baloch, Pashtun, and Sindhis are suspect before they can prove their loyalty. Uh, And so that sense I get from, you know, uh, some of my best friends are Punjabis, as I said, uh, and Pashtuns, right? Right. did you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, this question of assuming before you even speak or express your political preferences, this general told me, Yar, mujhe samaj nahi aati ka kya So I said, What do you mean? He said, Yar, uh, When I was in PMA, my roommate was a Baloch. We played football together. We never had a problem. What is wrong with these baloch, right? So if you define your nationalism in very restrictive, constrained ways and you privilege an ethnic group politically, socially, materially, right? If Baloch nationalism in the 90s for all the imperfect kind of democratic system we had had started to buy-in into the political system, right? You have to create that buy-in, and I think if there's one way that is through democratic, peaceful accommodation of grievances. If you tell the Baloch, we're gonna come and hit you, and you won't know what hit you, that's gonna flare up, and it, it that's incendiary rhetoric. Right? Why would the Baloch feel? I went to Baloch, I mean, I was in Quetta, uh, doing some research for ICG, and we were entering Quetta from, um, we had gone for dinner somewhere outside, and the way I didn't, I didn't tell anyone who I. I mean, I didn't tell the FC guards who I was. And the way they treated us, the two Baloch, one was actually, a, I think, a, a union nazim at the point. They literally, I mean, they could have just taken our clothes off and you know hit us. Short of that, the humiliation, the daily kind of uh, taunting humiliation based on who you are, right? That's the that's the that's a that's the identity. That's the I, kind of million-dollar question of identity. Uh, you know, that you you disown these people, that you treat them as crap, and then you expect them to say, well, I'm also a Pakistani. Well,
0: I'd just like to add something to this, where I've also found like a sort of a new category, although it fits into already old established uh, prejudices, Mm -hmm. it's the IDP. It's the way even the provinces have articulated, you know, uh, positions on their movement and how uh, no. uh, so it's interesting that yeah but the, but, but, but even but that's not are also doing it no, which no, is no, an no, interesting it, thing if
2: in yeah. idp is intentionally displaced for shukoon right yeah, that's the, the perception the it's the perception. Yeah. not internally <laughs> it's <laughs> displaced it's <laughs> intentional but, but, but no I, more, I want to
0: add is that i've also yeah. noticed that like in peshawar even in charshadda is some of the attitudes to yeah. idps have been appalling uh, yeah. it, it's it, it's an internal fracture as well that you know i i can only imagine how these guys feel right now, yeah. but yeah, sorry, you wanted to say something. I just think
1: it. sometimes in these theoretical discussions, mm-hmm. we let it get away from us that you know there's no monolith even within small, tiny communities. I right? agree. That I agree. Pashtuns in Karachi are contesting each other for space as much as they are the Punjabi workers yeah, yeah. and the Mahajir sort of you know yeah. uh, sort of uh, core uh, the M- the core of the MQM that there's enough. Uh, diversity, both across these identities and yeah. within them, yeah. that a lot of these stereotypes sometimes fall down on their face. But uh, right,
2: but when the state uses a stick, right? And so I don't think of myself a pursuit. But some intelligence guy comes up to me and says, well, you must be a Paschoon, right? It's like the United States. You're Even if you're not a kind of diehard practicing Muslim, if you're reminded every day that you're Muslim, you're different, and there's a problem with that, well, you know... You're going to want to go to the masjid. <laughs> even if the identity is fractured, that can have a rally around the kind of uh, nationalist or I sub-national flag, right?
0: Akhil, uh, I just wanted to thank you. I know you have to go someplace. Yep. It's been a fascinating discussion, a really happy to have you on and uh, you know uh, some of the perspectives you've brought and I hope that at some point in the future we'll continue with this discussion and
1: uh, bring more to the table on different topics as well. Yeah, uh, what you know I mean I think I wish that I wish that we, we had the ability to listen more carefully and more deeply to voices like yours. It's been a revelation talking to you. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and the integrity you. and uh, you know, the, the sort of the clarity that you brought to the to the podcast I think today was, it was really illuminating. Thank you so much for making Ask the time. Ask anybody
2: from cadet College. <laughs> <laughs> I just <laughs> tell you I really enjoyed it. Thank you so, so, much, so much for giving me the opportunity. Uh, and yeah, uh, I love you, you. too. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Hey, God bless you. I'll take care uh listeners thanks as always for joining us that's uh, me signing out for office